The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 242. This is our most recent question and answer session from our 2023 Los Angeles Super Seminar. Now, I know Super Seminar could use a rebranding, but effectively what we did is we took our two-day pain and rehab seminar and combined it with our two-day health and performance seminar and did it all in one weekend. The reviews were pretty positive, so uh, we'll likely do this again in the future. But for now, this is the question and answer session from that with uh, Dr. Miles, Dr. Baraki, and myself. But before we get into that, a few announcements. Uh, flash sale today only. It ends tonight at midnight uh, Pacific Standard Time, today being September 27, 2023. We are offering 15% off our vanilla Whey RX product, 90 calories per serving. It's just whey protein isolate, handful of ingredients, no fillers, no gimmicks, no nothing. 15% off. Uh, the code is PRO15. Just use that at checkout. And uh, yeah, get yourself some whey protein if you're into that. Um, also, please send us your submissions for our mailbag segment and quack watch segments. Uh, really looking forward to doing those for you guys on the podcast. The email address is media at barbellmedicine.com. Looking forward to your submissions there. We also have two upcoming live in-person seminars. Uh, so we have our health and performance seminar that's going to be in Sacramento, California, the end of October of this year. That's uh, Alan Thrall's gym, Untamed Strength, one of the best gyms in the entire country. So would love to see you there. And then also, if you are in the Southern Hemisphere, we'll be in Australia in January of 2024, both in Perth and Sydney. So looking to see you there as well. Finally, this podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head over to generalleathercraft.com, tell them Barbell Medicine sent you, and make sure to go over there between October 6th through 8th. That is their Christmas sale. The entire website will be marked down by 15%. You don't need any codes, uh, but you can go over there. And if you need a new belt, a second belt, or uh, some new knee sleeves, they are going to have those on their website as well. I'm getting sent a pair to do some testing, and so I will report back. But, yep, their Christmas sale is going on October 6th through 8th, so don't forget about that. Again, the entire website is marked down 15%. No code needed. Okay, I think that's it. Let's pop into this week's podcast. Again, this is the September 2023 Barbell Medicine Super Seminar question and answer session with myself, Dr. Baraki, and Dr. Miles. All right. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming to the 2023 uh, Barbell Medicine Super Seminar. I didn't workshop that to research the, for the name, but that's the best I could come up with in 10 seconds. That's, that's where my brain went. So these are curated questions. Austin pared these down. If we didn't get to your question, we, if we eliminated it, it's his fault. So you slide into his DMs uh, if he's unconcerned. 
But uh, if you do have other pressing questions, we answer questions every day on our forum. You go on our website, uh, interact with us directly. Uh, that's a good avenue for us. Also, our Facebook group, we're really active there. And um, yeah, so let's pop into it. This is question number one. When you see somebody who is jacked, are they necessarily healthier? What are the risks to being jacked? Do they also have increased fat mass? Okay, a couple questions here. So when you see someone who is jacked, are they necessarily healthier? I think this, I, when I think about somebody's muscle mass levels, I think about it as being a sort of threshold type uh, thing that if they're above a certain point, I'm less worried about their long-term risk for sarcopenia or other sort of uh, health conditions associated with very low levels of muscle mass and muscle, poor muscle function. So you think about sarcopenia, that's literally just le having less muscle mass, too little muscle mass, and poor muscle function. And usually how this works is you lose so much muscle mass that then muscle function becomes impaired and then quality of life and health tends to suffer. But when I think about things on the opposite side, I'm really th uh, trying to, uh, make sure that somebody has enough muscle mass where they're at zero or very little risk of developing that unless something really, really bad happens. And so we were joking around about if we had like this gains composite score that we'd put together a few things that would tell us like if somebody uh, had a relatively high level of musculoskeletal health. And so it'd be like their chest measurement, their waist circumference, their bench press 1RM, like a leg press or squat 1RM. And then you'd have something like their test levels to make sure that it wasn't above the normal range so they weren't on anabolics. Uh, unless <laughs> at super physiological doses, you'd have like a, a depression inventory, like a few other things. It's more of a joke, but you know, we could come up with a gain score, write an article about it, and people would love it. Uh, as far as the risks of being too jacked, um, in general, if we eliminate any sort of discussion about polypharmacy, my main concern is when people's BMI creeps above 30. Because yes, you will have more muscle mass, like in general, individuals with obesity or uh, you know, if their BMI is over 30, or individuals with overweight, they will carry more uh, lean body mass in general than those with lower BMIs, but the risks from carrying too much fat mass kind of outweigh the additional benefits, if any, of carrying more muscle mass. So that's kind of that inflection point I'm thinking about. Uh, and then as far as do they always have increased fat mass? Well, certainly not. There are people walking around with a lot of lean body mass and not a lot of fat mass. But again, I think once you get to that BMI over 30, and certainly 35, I do start to concern myself, uh, or I am concerned with excess fat mass, and then again, how they got there. So did they, are they just a freak, an outlier, in which case, cool. But if they used some assistance that has their own risks um, for attaining that level of muscularity, um, I, I do have concerns, and also I don't know that it's beneficial to their health compared to having less and not choosing those avenues to attain that level of muscularity. Yeah, when I uh, talked about this topic in the initial sarcopenia discussion, uh, mentioned how research has kind of looked at what tends to correlate better with health outcomes, the amount of muscle mass that you have or muscle strength, and we found that strength actually tends to be more predictive and more closely related. So if you substituted in this question, when you see somebody who is jacked, are they necessarily healthier? If you just subbed that out and said, are they stronger? Are they necessarily healthier? I think you, many of you can probably recognize that 
that's not necessarily the case, right? Somebody who can squat 500 is not necessarily healthier than somebody who can squat 495 or 405. That is kind of like the threshold effect that Jordan's talking about. Above a certain level, additional strength, additional muscle mass is gonna have very little additional health impact, um, but certainly at very low, going from extremely low levels to moderate amounts is gonna have substantial impacts, and then those benefits taper off pretty quickly. It's more so a matter of, as you progress in life, how much of that falls away? How much of that do you lose? Which can, of course, be mitigated to an enormous extent through continued training. So that's kind of my view on this, is paying more attention to muscle strength and muscle function over the amount of mass. And then definitely above a certain level, like for example, probably all of us have maximized the health benefits that there are to be had through just our ability to produce force. In other words, in terms of strength, none of us are under the illusion that adding another 10 pounds or even 10% to any of our lifts is going to make us any healthier. If anything, it's going to be more detrimental to our mental health trying to get there. Uh, but we're all okay with that. And we signed up for that. Yeah. I'd also, I'd also make the point that if I see somebody uh, who can squat like 700 pounds, for example, or somebody who's like 260 pounds, relatively lean, carrying a ton of muscle mass, at that point, I'm, I'm starting to concern myself, well, okay, if they've achieved this sort of specialization in either muscularity and or muscular strength, what's their cardiorespiratory fitness look like? Because we know, again, there's that dose-dependent relationship between cardiorespiratory fitness and sort of reduction in risk from heart disease. And it's like, in order to specialize in strength power sports, in general, you're giving up some of that cardiorespiratory fitness development. So striking that perfect you know, inflection point. It's an optimization problem, right? And you're gonna get to two different points if you're optimizing health versus optimizing performance in a particular sport. And so for the sport, it might be a feature and not a bug, but for health, it may be a bug. And as far as convincing somebody who has dedicated their entire life's training to getting as muscular as possible or as strong as possible to like, we may need to compromise some of your training resources, some of your uh, training outcomes for this other thing that you are concerned with less based on where you're at now, that can be a tough conversation to have. Well, and I think it's interesting the different approaches we all take to it because for me, there is that paper where they looked at mental health and Olympic athletes where I think if we're going to look at uh, the definition of jacked, being in the Olympiad would check that box for a lot of people. And the rates were relatively high. I believe it was like 60 to 75% had some type of mental health diagnosis associated with it. And if that's the case, like, depends on how we're defining health. We probably have some other metrics that are worth discussing along the way. We'll come up with that game score. Okay. All right, question number two. What is one thing that each one of you wish you knew more about? You can start, yeah, why don't you start this one? <laughs> Everything? Yeah. I, mean, I don't think I've ever had anything that, you know, you know what, I wish I knew less about that. Uh, well, oh, that is a lot. Things, yeah, I wish I knew things, less so, yeah. about influencer culture. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> everything. Yeah. I think if I could pick one sort of either science-related topic or like fund of knowledge type situation that I knew more about, it would be statistics, particularly related to uh, science and, and you know epidemiology. And yeah, there are whole graduate programs in that. I feel fairly confident in reading papers, you know, and ascertaining do this, does this methodology support the conclusions and kind of weighing that evidence against what I previously knew. But if I had a better statistical background, I'd be able to tear apart these papers at an even higher level and probably have some different insights that I'm just completely missing right now based on uh, my limited, although somewhat trained, statistical knowledge. So 
Yeah, I actually think that's a good answer. I figured you're, you're usually better at coming up with stuff on the spot like that. Nailed it. Although I fall in line with Derek, kind of everything um, in general. But I do think going through the amount of education and formal training and postgraduate training that I've been through, it is like pretty remarkable to come out of that and then be like, well, still don't know much. Yeah. And then the amount of ongoing self-study that I do all the time, uh, even since finishing residency, has been enormous. And I feel like I'm like a completely different clinician now than I was when I came out of residency. And that's like a forever kind of thing, which is do you ever, do you ever look, unreal. Do you ever look back at like, okay, so when you graduated from med school, for example, uh, you had X fund of knowledge. And then when you got out of residency, you had X plus Y fund of knowledge. Do you ever reflect back and you're like, ugh. I'm like, I still feel like I'm needing to double that periodically just based on what I see in practice. And I'm like, well, I don't know enough about this. So I need to, you know, add that to. I mean, I feel like I have that uh, sensation like once every three weeks. Yeah. yeah. The problem with the internet is that the internet never forgets. It's either cached in a you know, certain file or people have read something that you wrote 15 years ago. And somebody will bring this up to me on occasion, like, hey, you wrote this thing 15 years ago. Has your opinion changed? And I'm like, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, science keeps marching forward, right? And so if I haven't updated my priors, then uh, things are different now. Okay, question number three. For an individual already taking prescription sleep medication who still struggles with sleep and sleep hygiene slash sleep routine, which interventions are demonstrated in the research to be most effective for insomnia, assuming they are already receiving general mental health treatment? Austin, I see you did some... Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we covered this because sleep is something that unfortunately we run out of time to go into great detail on in this. There's a little appendix in the text, but we've, we've done a podcast on it, but it's so important that it's worth just discussing a little bit. There is important to differentiate between acute insomnia, short term, that tons of people experience, does not need specific treatment in most cases, and more chronic insomnia. And then within chronic insomnia, it can be primary, meaning this person just has chronic insomnia, or it can be secondary to some other mental health related condition. Could be a mood disorder, anxiety related, PTSD related. Um, there are various other neurological, pe people who've had a traumatic brain injury, substance use disorders, you know, dementia, all sorts of things that can uh, contribute to, or things that insomnia can be a symptom of. And so there's a lot of, you know, clinical you know, details and analysis that needs to happen to tease those things apart first. But if you want to just generally approach chronic insomnia management, then sleep hygiene, which was mentioned in this question, is a whole topic of its own that needs to be in place you know, in terms of appropriate sleep habits, which we know, uh, uh, we've discussed a ton in, in other places. Beyond that, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is one particular behavioral intervention with a specialized form of you know, therapy to work on behaviors around sleep and well, as well as cognitions. That's cognitive behavioral therapy, behaviors as well as thoughts. So things like maintaining a relatively rigid like sleep and wake time consistently every day, like get out of bed at the same time every day, no matter what, go to bed at the same time, but also restricting the amount of time you spend in bed to the amount of time that you estimate you'll be sleeping. In other words, not lying there anxious about not falling asleep for hours. That's a cue to like get up, go do something else, try again later. That's called stimulus control to not be lying in bed, just catastrophizing over, I'm gonna be a mess tomorrow because I'm not falling asleep. Things like that from a behavioral standpoint, as well as many others. And then addressing, like I said in the, re, in the uh, pain lecture this morning, therapies in the context of pain and rehab where we want to address unhelpful thoughts and fears about the meaning of pain, similar things apply here. People have all sorts of thoughts and fears about what this sleep or lack thereof is going to do to them. And so addressing those can be important. 
And then beyond cognitive behavioral therapy, there are a variety of medications that can be used to aid in sleep uh, in terms of their sedating effects. Uh, but discussion of that kind of whole pharmacologic category is definitely beyond the scope of what we would tackle here today. So that's kind of like the short story on chronic insomnia. Is it primary? Is it due to something else that needs to be treated? And then within it, there's basic sleep hygiene behavioral interventions, CBT, which can be tough to access in certain places, as well as medications that you need to discuss with a clinician because they'd all be prescription and ideally uh, not long-term, but sometimes they have to be long-term too. Yeah. That's kind of the short story. I would just say if somebody's on medication for chronic insomnia, is already seen a mental health professional and is still having issues sleeping, like already you're identifying yourself as someone who would benefit from very specialized care, likely from an expert. And so none of us are you know, sleep med docs, uh, and have not gone through that requisite training. We do have experience with not only acute insomnia, but chronic insomnia, treating and managing people uh, thereof. But uh, in general, once you are at this level, 10 out of 10 would recommend trying to access a sleep med medicine professional. Um, it's just, we're just dudes, you know, at this point. So, um, okay, Derek, did you have, you wanna, no? What time you go to bed usually? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So maybe some acute on chronic insomnia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Next question. Programming for powerlifting. Are accessories necessary all the way up to the meet date? And I, I think probably before I pop into this, just want to like maybe define the term, right? So accessory, because some people use accessory lifts for supplemental lifts versus competition lifts. And in my view, there are the competition lifts, which are the squat, bench press, deadlift to the competition standard. All right, and so that means that the squats are not paused, it's just down and up. The bench press is paused, just like you would do in a meet, and then the deadlift, again, no, no variation thereof, just the standard deadlift. Everything else I would consider under the same umbrella as just supplemental exercises. You could call them accessory exercises, I'd accept that too. And as far as should you remove them from programming uh, compared to keeping them in, it kind of also depends, are you replacing them with more exposure to the competition lifts or are you just removing them entirely and lowering the volume of your training down therefore reducing the training stress. And so then that bears a discussion of like, okay, well how long is this removal happening for? Uh, because the process of like tapering or peaking in that particular situation, which is usually like a seven to 10 day sort of process, I could make a fairly strong case for most folks to pull out or pull back significantly all of the non-competition lifts you're exposing yourself to in that short window. But if we're talking like a month, five weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, something like that, I think this is more uh, unique to each individual. And so there are some people who I program for uh, that I'll keep all of the non-competition stuff in there up until that very last week. And there are other people that I'll replace those things with competition uh, uh, lifts so they get more and more exposure to it, more practice for their sport. And it really just depends on the person's preferences and how they respond. Uh, and, that, and that response is unique to that particular point in their life. And so what a lot of people do is have a uh, positive experience with a particular sort of training approach and then that's their like go-to. That's like, oh, I'm just gonna play my greatest hits every time I go into a meet and do that same sort of protocol. And it's like, that was only applicable for that unique point in your time uh, because you as an organism are changing constantly. And so I think it's useful to have different options and respond to the sort of current status or current state that you're in. And so my general sort of thought on this is that 
I would not remove all non-competition exercises uh, or, uh, from a person's program unless I had severe concerns over their technique or their confidence in executing those lifts. So it's a person who four weeks out from a meet is like, I think I forgot how to squat. My squat's going terribly. I don't know what to do. At that point, I'm willing to risk maybe a suboptimal training stress, okay, uh, for increased mental confidence in, able, in execution. So instead of doing like a competition squat on day one, supplemental squat, which might be like a pause squat or a pin squat or something on day three, I'm going to have them do comp squats again even though I would prefer them to have some more variation to reduce the risk of overuse, injury, and then uh, also give them a slightly different stimulus, I'm like, eh, let's just do competition squat. Or for some people, they're like, my bench press has really not responded well. I'm having all these concerns and hangups, and I'm perseverating on my bench press right now. I'm like, great, we might bench press every day, and it's only competition bench press. But those are more outlier sort of situations rather than my traditional approach. And so if you're wondering how I peak people in general for powerlifting meets, we have two free templates available on our website. Uh, and so that's kind of the way I do it. Do you uh, do something different? By, by the time we're getting close to a meet, I've usually come up with a training formulation for people that they tolerate pretty well, that they enjoy, that they're rolling with, and things are feeling pretty good. And so I tend to keep things in quite a long time. Um, I'm not really tinkering with things too much by that point. So I think that for most of the people that I've worked with, their accessories and excuse me, non-competition lifts are staying in their program, you know, well into the early, the first couple days of like their competition week. And then by midweek, they're starting to get pulled out. That's probably most of, most of the time. But that's the final week that you're talking about. Not yeah. like the last. Not like the last day or something like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. But all the way up close. What's the closest to a meet that you've had a competitor do like a full on workout, like not a taper workout, but like a regular sort of training session? Probably like a... Wednesday or Thursday before a Saturday meet would, yeah, would be. Yeah. But some people are like, I took my last heavy squat three weeks ago. And I'm like, did you forget how to squat though? Yeah. I yeah, feel like, yeah. Yeah. The only time I'll do something like that is somebody's dealing with like an injury situation, in, in which case I'm like, maybe this extra time off will like, uh, you know, give you some time, even though that would not be my preferred Then the question approach. is, should we be competing? Yeah. Well, you said it. <laughs> and there's so much money on the line in powerlifting. <laughs> you really got to yeah. stick to that meet schedule. All right. This question, it's just for you, Derek, so we're just not going to answer. Uh, how, can, <laughs> how can we progress the ground reaction force after injury to get back to running, like adjusting the external load for lifting? And why is the answer not using an Alter-G treadmill? Uh, can you tell people what an Alter-G treadmill is? Um, an Alter-G Alter treadmill is a treadmill that essentially puts you in a bubble and offloads your weight. Is that like the thing with like the suspend, like the suspension? Yes. Oh, yeah. okay. Cool. And it certainly can be a way of doing it. It's not my preferred way of doing it. And the reason I would give as such is if I'm trying to get you back into running and we're not doing that behavior because of an injury, I don't necessarily want to scale that and lose sight of the other activities that we need to be doing at the time. As far as how to do it, there's a million different ways. And if we're trying to increase some force, like any type of landing drill is gonna work. Snatch balance, I mean, we can bubba gump this for exercises ways of doing it. And running drills where we're bounding, where you're changing direction, you're still getting force from the ground up into it. And I think sometimes we 
overcomplicate it or church it up for the sake of making it fancy and needing a $50,000 treadmill that I can set to a certain body weight percentage off just isn't on my list of things that I think are necessary. So if you were taking somebody who wanted to get back to running, who is currently not running at all, and they're, they've done no sort of like high ground reactive force type movements or no sort of like dynamic landing type exercises, what's your progression just in general from like zero to 100? Uh, we might start early on with something as simple as like a snap down. So from tall standing down. Just like dropping down. Dropping down. Okay. Uh, single leg lands, high knees, butt kicks, deceleration lunges, some type of like oscillating split squat where we're going fast. And there isn't a right answer. And a lot of times in these instances, it comes down to what the athlete is willing to do how hard we need to push into the intensity and what equipment or space I have available. Sure. Okay. How do you control the dose for that? So you like... Full send. Full. <laughs> well, the idea is like, so if you had somebody who's never done anything before, for example, how many drop lands would you have them do? And It would likely depend on what I'm seeing them for. If it was something like a, a bone stress injury, um, we're probably going to go to tolerance. Like I'm trying not to find that ceiling. Whereas if it's something that is post-operative and I've checked my limb symmetry index box, I'm likely to probably dose that a little bit higher on day one because I have a, a better feeling that I'm not going to find the upper threshold. And why is the funniest thing that you've ever seen from a client submission powerlifters jumping? <laughs> As it turns out, for all of the force production uh, related to the sport, there's not a lot of air between uh, nope. the ground and the feet that Can often. Can confirm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. All right. Next question. Austin, do you think this cumulative exposure model idea fits for most things, whether they are, quote, positive or, quote, negative? Uh, can you explain the... Yeah, so as a reminder from the cardiovascular disease section, we talked about how cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death worldwide. It is uh, particularly the subtype that we talked about, atherosclerosis, where you get plaque development in your blood vessels, can lead to these health complications, is a very long-term process um, in kind of usual or common uh, cardiovascular disease. It takes many, many, many years to decades for it to develop due to a confluence of multiple risk factors and the way... The, the, the risk is going to be proportional to the cumulative lifelong exposure to each of these individual risk factors. So things like exposure to smoking, how much do you smoke, how long have you smoked for? Blood pressure, how high is your blood pressure, how long has it been elevated for? Blood lipids, how high are they and how high have they been elevated for? Among many other risk factors. So the cumulative exposure, that kind of area under the curve is what drives risk. For people who have extremely high you know, risk factors, uh, either a single one, like in familial hypercholesterolemia, or multiple moderate, you know, elevated risk factors, that risk is gonna accumulate earlier in life. We might see things like heart attacks in the 30s or 40s, and in, in some cases, sometimes even younger. And then for those for, who do not have as uh, uncontrolled of risk factors or who have better control of them, the risk of disease manifesting will be pushed later and later into life. If somebody experiences it at all, they may die of something else before something like cardiovascular disease ever manifests. So that's the summary of the cumulative exposure concept as it relates to cardiovascular disease. And I would say, yes, this also applies to good things. In other words, you do not suddenly, even though 
I suspect there's like some, some health memes around this. You have like a salad and suddenly everything is like perfect. No, you guys know that that's not how that works. It has more to do with cumulative lifelong exposure to a health promoting dietary pattern. Doing one conditioning workout does not absolve you of a lifetime of not having done any conditioning. It is the cumulative lifelong exposure and maintenance of those habits, whether it's strength training, whether it's conditioning, whether it's the health promoting dietary pattern, whether it's the cumulative lifelong exposure to, you know, uh, uh, adequate sleep sleep duration and sleep quality, all of these things will be the drivers of good outcomes um, in the same way that, you know, a lifetime of terrible sleep habits, um, of terrible dietary, you know, pattern, et cetera, can uh, contribute to other negative health consequences. So yeah, long-term habits are what matter. That's why we put such an emphasis on behavior change rather than saying, hey, do this thing once and uh, you'll be great, or take this one supplement and it'll fix everything. Yeah. I think the cumulative exposure model is analogous to like that physical 401k when you think about like exercise and maybe dietary pattern stuff. It's like every time that you do any sort of physical activity or exercise, you're contributing a little bit or a lot of it to your physical 401k. And you're just trying to grow your savings account to as big as possible so that if you have to make a withdrawal or multiple withdrawals at some point in your life, you don't go into the negative and get charged that overdraft fee. And sometimes you can't get out of the negative and you have too many overdrafts and uh, bad, bad things. And so, yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you that this is, you're just sort of stacking mm -hmm. stuff on top, of each other, uh, on top of each other, positive or negative. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. All right, Derek, I'll be curious to see what you say here, so good luck. What is Barbell Medicine's hot take on cold light laser therapy? Uh, the haiku version would be it's hot garbage. Yes, it is. That's six. Oh, man, missed it by one. <laughs> but we have this obsession with passive modalities and doing things to athletes instead of with athletes. And if you look at how the literature is on cold laser therapy, dry needling, cupping, or myofascial decompression that's certainly not cupping, even though it's the exact same thing. It, it all is this over-extrapolation of the literature with grandiose claims. And I think a lot of that entails a fundamental misunderstanding of physiology and how pain works as well. And the papers often start out with some physiological premise and it gets extrapolated into an editorial which is then cited as evidential reason for the op-ed that then justifies whatever it is that gets posted on the website as a published paper that is actually a blog and all of a sudden we're seeing every professional sports team use said cold laser, warm laser, tepid laser. Tepid la yeah, <laughs> I prefer tepid lasers, if anything, if I'm gonna be exposed to lasers. Yeah. yeah. 
I don't have any comments on cold light laser therapy. I don't know anything about it. Okay. <laughs> Next question. The American College of Sports Medicine, ACSM, arbitrarily, that's true, recommends the beginner start with uh, eight to 12 reps, and then intermediate advanced trainees can progress to four to 12 reps for additional strength benefits. Thoughts on avoiding lower rep ranges at the same RPE for a, quote, novice lifter? I'm gonna start there. A program sets a seven for everybody. Sevens just across yeah. the boards for any particular. Yeah. yeah, that was just an opinion that somehow made it into a textbook and was taken as being the way things should go. It's. But why do you think they, they decided on that rep range, eight to 12? Instead of probably a leftover from Thomas DeLorme and the three sets of 10. Yep. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, it should have just been three sets of 10, but yeah. they're like, eh, we'll do a standard deviation of two either way and call it eight to 12. Yeah. But it's easier to progress strength at lower rep ranges. If you look at trying to add weight, if you add, add fives to a set of 10 versus a set of five, like it's a pretty significant tonnage jump, especially at lighter weights. Well, yeah, and and as the higher the rep scheme kind of goes up, the more and more conditioning demands you have from that set, right? So you're instead of selecting for more and more force production, strength, low maximal strength sort of development, you're selecting for more strength, stamina, conditioning related adaptations. And so, like I discussed in the programming lecture, the intensity is going to determine the type of adaptations that you're going to get. And the things that determine your intensity are the rep scheme that you picked and the proximity to failure. Right, and so RPE you can use to determine your proximity to failure, repetitions in reserve, uh, you can use that as well. And then the rep range uh, combined with that tells you, well, how heavy is this thing? And I would prefer for all trainees across the board to get all of those adaptations, the neurological uh, focused ones, the structural ones, the energy uh, storage, energy buffering uh, ones, do them all. I see no reason to avoid reps in the you know one to six rep range, although people then will be like, so everyone should do singles? And I'm like, I have less sort of use for that because you can get, and I'm making this up, 90% of the benefits uh, that you would get from a one rep effort by doing a three rep effort, for example. And they're like, well, why not do singles? And I'm like, well, that same period of time, you could have done a set of three, right? Uh, and then I also think people are like, if they see us one, rep, they're like, oh, he means max out. And I'm like, let's probably not do that in the gym and training in a you know, zero stakes uh, kind of situation. So I would disagree with that rep scheme. And then I would also disagree with the transition to a lower rep range. And I would further then just ask, well, why stop at fours? Why not include one, two, three, especially if you're going to test people's max strength by doing a one RM test. They do this all the time in untrained people when they do like a resistance training intervention. A lot of the programming stuff is like, yeah, we tested their 1RM and then we did percentage-based stuff over the next eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks. These are people who have never trained before and they're like, yeah, let's just max out on your leg press. Just, and, it, and that's not just in young people, that's in like, you know, people in their seventh decade. They're like, yeah, we put granny on the leg press, had her max out, and then we did on week one, it was 60%, then it was 65%, and so on. And somehow these people live to tell the tale, right? So the idea that it's intrinsically dangerous to lift at a lower rep range at the same proximity to failure, so the intensity is higher, doesn't seem to be borne out in the literature, even when they're doing stuff that I would probably not do just because I think it's not worth it for the training cost. My thought on this, uh, I don't have any objections to novice lifters doing these kind of lower rep range at the beginning, nor do I think that they must do it either. I think my perspective on this is one that I think is useful uh, after a 
decent amount of experience in training and in rehabbing things and coming back from setbacks. The perspective that I take when I'm faced with some kind of a training related decision is how much is my decision that I make here today going to matter in like a year? We get questions like this posted to our forum where somebody's like, hey, so I had this thing come up in my life and I missed this session. Should I like make up this session or should I move on to the next week? And I'm like, fast forward a year from now, are you going to be in a fundamentally different place in your strength performance, your hypertrophy, and you're gonna be like that one session that I skipped or reset, right? Um, and this, you'd probably be very surprised about how little most things matter when you zoom out to that level of, uh, you know, that, that time scale outside of continuing to train. And so for, through that lens, if now when I frame the question, do you think it matters whether a beginner does a set of four or a set of eight? And I'm like, okay, where are they gonna be? Assuming they train consistently for the next decade, are they gonna look back on the first month that they trained and be like, if only I had started with fours, I'd be in such a different place. Right? So that's my perspective on this, is really trying to look at how much this stuff matters in terms of big picture results and adaptations and the things that I care about, because ultimately, very little matters. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's true, yeah. just in general. All right, All right next question. <clears throat> how to determine whether someone's pain is biological or psychological? You cannot. So just not? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anything more? I can, I can add something here. No, it's, it really is. It, there isn't a like, hard line. There can certainly be biological contributors. There could be psychological contributors. There could be social contributors mm -hmm. to all of this. Yeah. And you can't nail it down to it being just a thing, like, to steal your phrase, why or when you can and. Yeah, why not both? Yeah, and, and, and I think there's almost like an uncertainty principle here to where like the more you try and figure out what is going on in this exact moment, the more impossible it is to figure out the prognosis for that person. And the more you try and figure out the prognosis for that person, the less what is happening in this exact moment matters, which is funny because that's very analogous to the training thing you just said as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that this is just an, a, a, a consequence of us trying to break things down as a way of understanding them when really it's all kind of an artifactual sort of thing, right? Pain is just this experience that people just have. And our crude attempt to try to understand it is to break it down into these categories of what variables can impact the process. But if somebody comes in and they say they have knee pain, it doesn't matter. I can do every sort of evaluation in the world. I'm never going to come to the conclusion and say, oh, well, this is psychological knee pain, right? That's not a thing that exists. Now, if you're talking about emotional pain being a psychological thing, sure, that can be its own category. But in the realm of like what we're generally calling musculoskeletal, which itself has implications of like, oh, it's just your knee. It's purely a structural thing. That's also incorrect. It's just this experience. It's like saying, you know, are you having hunger that is purely psychological or purely biological? Are you having thirst that is purely psychological or biological? Are you having fatigue that is any of these subjective symptoms? They're just experiences and they have multiple variables that impact them. It is not possible to distinguish them. I could even have somebody coming in to the ER that I see for chest pain who is actively having a heart attack. Am I gonna say that is purely biological pain? No, because they are a human who had a brain to think, oh, this is probably bad. Let me go to the ER and get checked out. They're probably terrified. Or in many cases, they're not terrified and their wife dragged them in because they're having crushing chest pain and they didn't wanna to go to the hospital, right? This is something that happens all the time. That is not biological pain. That is just pain that they are experiencing. There are some biological nociceptive processes as their myocardium dies, 
But there's also a psychological component. There's also a social component. Oh, my dad had this when he was this age or something like that. All this stuff is happening simultaneously. Do not try to divide it um, up. Just recognize that it can all be impacted by multiple things. Will you allow me to play devil's advocate as maybe like one of the internet people would, uh, would do? Go for it. Well, what if like somebody was in a car accident and they had like a, you know, compo uh, a compound fracture of their femur? Isn't that just biological pain due to trauma? No, no psychological sort of component there? I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> oh, well, hey, somebody who goes through, I I'm would just say going just through a, a motor vehicle accident certainly has psychological implications to it, no matter in what position your femur is. In. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, obviously I knew that's how you guys were gonna answer. My, yeah. my kind just of, like saying it out loud. Yes, I know. Kind of obvious. But right? <laughs> my, my, my addition to this is, is you guys are just explicitly saying not trying to bifurcate somebody's pain into one or the other, or you could trifurcate it into, okay, this is biological, this is psychological, this is social. No, all that is doing is helping you better understand the person's experience, right? And so in the case of the femur fracture due to a motor vehicle accident, yes, there is acute trauma. Those are some bio, strong biological factors influencing this experience. But whatever was happening in or around that area and that person's sort of understanding of what's going on can influence their experience so for example if the car was on fire and you know they had to make a mad dash just to get out of the car to save their life they may not in that particular time experience much pain because not only are they in some sort of shock but also fight or flight has kicked in and they're like just get out of the car man get out of the car and then only afterwards they realize oh my leg is actually mangled disfigured and uh, yeah I should probably seek care for this there was a guy I came uh, came in uh, while I was in the ED uh, in Norfolk and I guess he had somehow felt fallen down some stairs and he had fractured his femur up near his hip or whatever, but didn't know it until hours later because it was in some sort of emergent situation. And I go, bro, you were just hustling around with a fractured femur? He goes, yeah, I, I knew it felt a little weird, but I had stuff to do. And I was like, <laughs> okay, man. All right, that was just me, I, I was trying. Internet, I was trying, okay. What considerations are necessary around the menstrual cycle for strength training gen pop? Uh, this is actually a good question. We have a multi-part series on our website uh, written by Claire Zai. Uh, definitely had some input there. We've done a podcast on this. There are some training texts available by people unaffiliated with barbell medicine that would have you believe that based on somebody's menstrual cycle and position they're in, they need very specific programming modifications. Higher volume, lower volume, higher intensity, lower intensity, based on where they're at in their menstrual cycle. The evidence right now is not supportive of such a sort of management, micromanagement of somebody's program. So I'm just going to ignore all that and then tell you that I do not think there needs to be any sort of training modifications based on somebody's menstrual cycle uh, outside of their experience of various symptoms that may or may not be associated with their menstrual cycle. If somebody has very significant symptoms uh, right before they enter the period of menses, you may want to prophylactically modify their training going forward if they routinely experience that. That way you can continue them uh, exercising in a productive fashion 
Um, but at the same time, that's limited to each individual and it's not necessarily just related to their menstrual cycle. You would do that with anybody, even if they weren't actively menstruating. If somebody said, look, every final week of the month, it's quota time, stress is super, super high, like I'm sleeping less, I'm working more, and I'm just overall really stressed out, you might, as a coach, lower the training stress for that week by cutting volume, increasing, or sorry, reducing the proximity to failure, so lowering the RPE, overall trying to make things a little more manageable, their total stress, not only in the gym, but outside the gym, it's combined on top of them, and so you'd wanna manage that appropriately. But I wouldn't do it prophylactically just based on the fact that someone is a woman and has a menstrual cycle. Uh, the last thing I'll say on this is if you are a coach, and in, t in general, men tend to be overrepresented in this role coaching women, and you have not asked your female clients about their menstrual cycle and if there's any sort of impact on their training or if they have any concerns around that, I would open the lines of communication there because if you don't bring it up, they might feel like it's taboo and not want to tell you things. And so, Again, having this, these sort of open lines of communication can be helpful because uh, you might find out some things that you would uh, otherwise be unaware of. No, nope. everything that's good. Did I nail it? Hell yeah! <laughs> I'm on a roll. Okay. Do we need more psychologists in the field of pain rehab? I mean, I don't think we need more psychologists. Just <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I'll let you start this one off. I mean, I don't know how many we have. Just with everything, it's, I would preface it and say, like, good pain psychologists, because I feel like this is a topic that, uh, or even do we need more physical therapists in pain and rehab, or do we need more physicians in it? And like, well, numbers doesn't tell me anything. It's, I, I, I want quality over quantity out of it. Do I think we benefit from collaborating with psychologists and their perspective? Absolutely. Do I think we need to increase in for the sake of increasing in? No. I think if we were going to make an argument for increasing access to well-trained mental health professionals in virtually all fields, I think that's a pretty strong argument I could make. Um, but as far as specifically within the field of like pain and rehabilitation and stuff like that, I can't comment with any certainty that we need more, but I would wholeheartedly predict that we could use more access. And I say we, I just mean everybody. Not everybody gets to see a mental health professional when they need one. And it's certainly a, a undertreated uh, sort of field within the uh, entirety of medicine. And so certainly within pain and rehab. But I think the question's getting at like, because we know there's, there's so much psychological impact on people's pain experience, mightn't folks benefit from seeing a well-trained mental health professional? I think you guys would both say yes. Absolutely. Okay. Anything else? No, just nothing. Okay. Next question. How can we talk about inflammation uh, and the difference slash importance of acute inflammation versus chronic dysregulated inflammation with patients and in the public? You just want to start with inflammation? Okay. <laughs> I mean, you're the inflammatory guy. So I described inflammation in the pain lecture as, you know, the, the classic hallmarks of it being areas that are red, hot, swollen, and tender. That's what we're all taught in, in school. Of course, there's you know, more subtle signs of inflammation, more you know, chronic that is not necessarily that overt. I think that one of the issues is that people generally view inflammation as bad. Um, and it can be in certain situations, particularly when it's chronic and unregulated, like as we see in autoimmune conditions that are uh, untreated or undertreated. But in the acute setting, particularly in the context of an injury, like I mentioned, with say a muscle tear or a fracture or post-operative situations, 
inflammation has a beneficial role, you know, controlled or it occurs through our immune system and it is how we recover, how we heal. And so that process needs to happen just because something is uh, uh, painful does not necessarily mean that it is inflamed. A lot of people use those words interchangeably, not the same thing. And also, we, just because we have NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, does not mean that all inflammation needs to be eliminated through taking these medicines. Um, in some situations, it can be helpful for tolerance, for activity, for to, to get through certain periods, but inflammation does not always need to be stamped out. In fact, you would... Uh, die if you were unable to mount an inflammatory response. There are various immune deficiencies that knock out certain aspects of the inflammatory response, and those people generally die of infections. So kind of an important deal. Yeah, I think when you're discussing inflammation in general, if this happens to be brought up either patient visit or people are saying, oh, this supplement or this particular dietary uh, ingredient reduces inflammation, what you really need to kind of focus on is the magnitude of the inflammation, right? Because there's some normal levels of inflammation every time you exercise, for example, that's an inflammatory sort of event, particularly afterwards. Um, and then the duration for which that elevation in inflammation lasts for. Uh, so if it goes on unchecked for weeks, months, years at a very high level, that can certainly drive disease processes. But if it's self-limited and sort of below the threshold, that which would otherwise cause disease, it's ultimately a twud, time wasted on useless detail. And like as Austin mentioned, if you stamped out all inflammation, that would be a, a general badness. Uh, and so uh, when people, public, public, are generally asking us about inflammation. They're usually inquiring about, again, a supplement, a dietary a sort of change or a certain training intervention that has been, uh, there are claims around reducing inflammation. It's like, okay, so one, where's the evidence to support this? And if there is evidence, what is the inflammation level in absolute terms? How is it changing? Because if it's going from unimportant to less unimportant, then I don't care. Right, and you wouldn't notice a difference. It's like tart cranberry juice, for example. It's like it lowers inflammation, and there are studies out there showing showing that it lowers uh, uh, CRP, C-reactive protein, which is one way you can measure sort of uh, inflammation. But the starting values of CRP were below anything you would care about, and then the reduction, although statistically significant, is not clinically relevant because again, they weren't high enough to matter in the first place, and now they're just a little bit lower within the error bars of the test for example, due to biological and clinical variation. And so you just got, it really just depends on what context this has come up with. But if somebody has a, you know, no, no joke, inflammatory condition that's caught, you know, playing a large role in their disease process, uh, kind of asking them, why are they concerned about this? What's their current understanding of how this is contributing to their experience? And then moving forward from there is a useful way to like help answer their questions. Do you have more that I bring up? No, that's it. Okay, last question. <clears throat> what is the mechanism of delayed onset muscle soreness? Why does the second day hurt more than the first day? Is delayed onset muscle soreness a bad sign if the goal is to simply get stronger at heavy singles, regardless of rep count? So delayed onset muscle soreness, uh, basically what happens is there's some muscular damage and that signals an immune cascade to occur. And it persists over uh, just a little bit longer than 48 hours. You know, they're still going on to some degree after that, but it sort of peaks in that 36 uh, kind of hour mark. And so effectively at day two, the reason why it quote hurts more is because it's had a longer time period to sort of take place. And so you get the immune system, the cavalry rides in and is like, we're gonna clean up all these damaged muscle fibers and signal muscle remodeling, muscle regeneration, et cetera. 
from a muscle hypertrophy standpoint, which I understand is not the question, uh, it seems that we do not get a significant increase in muscle hypertrophy, muscle cross-sectional area until muscle protein breakdown, muscle damage from a given exercise intervention, exercise bout has fallen below a certain level which again is why most hypertrophy responses seen in the literature happen after a few weeks into the program. Um, as far as is DOMS a bad sign in general? No, I think if you tr resistance trained your whole life and never experienced DOMS, that would signal to me <laughs> that at no point in your training were you uh, doing the adequate intensity, the adequate volume, and the adequate exercise variety that would be consistent with our views on programming. You shouldn't be sore every session, but if you're never sore, that seems highly unlikely for somebody who is training to an adequate level, uh, particularly from a uh, health and performance standpoint, certainly more towards that performance standpoint. Is DOMS a bad sign if the goal is to simply get stronger? Well, you certainly wouldn't want to test your maximal performance while being sore. And if you're sore all the time, that indicates to me that the current training stress is too high for your current fitness level. And so we would expect that after some accommodation, a period of accommodation where you got used to the program, that your uh, experience of delayed onset muscle soreness would be almost eliminated unless you did something uh, unadvised or ill-advised like, did a exercise that you never did for a very high volume, for example. You happen to go try out a CrossFit gym uh, and you've never done CrossFit before, uh, something like that. But again, even on a strength-focused program where you're, uh, the sole goal is to get as strong as humanly possible, you're going to get some DOMS sometimes. Um, and so I don't think you can avoid it entirely. I just wouldn't want it to be a regular feature of that program. And if it was, that would signal to me that the dose was a little high. Yeah, and that dose can be taken not just a little high, but as you mentioned, there are certain situations where people take it way high when they go ultra high volume on brand new stuff, and that's when I get to meet you in the hospital for having rhabdomyolysis. Um, see that multiple times a year uh, in people, and, and usually due to not making great decisions in their training. Sometimes, you know, where I live is very hot. I remember one guy who was like training for police academy, and they had him do just like an hour of air squats, like in a closed garage with no water or something insane. So he was in the hospital for like over a week, just getting pumped full of IV fluids. Uh, a few months ago for the clinicians in the audience, I had a guy whose CK level peaked at like 150,000 um, and he managed to not need dialysis. So that was nice. What's uh, a normal level of CK? Just for the Generally like less than, I don't know, like 500 or so, five to 700 would be normal. Seems like a lot. And so we start to get worried when it's over 5,000, 10,000. And so I've seen people, you know, over 100,000, some of whom need dialysis, some of whom don't. So this guy lucked out, but I've had other patients who got over 100,000 needed dialysis. So that's like the most ex severe example of delayed onset muscle soreness would be outright rhabdo. Yeah. So. I just think it's important to take away that if you never get DOMS, I have concerns about your training. Similarly, if you always get DOMS, I have concerns about your training. Yeah. And so somewhere in the middle where you experience it relatively infrequently, um, and just, again, it's going to happen. It'll uh, uh, kind of take care of itself naturally, um, and then kind of adjust your training as necessary. Yeah, I wouldn't do it just based on DOMS, but that uh, could be one indicator you could use. Good? That's it. Guys, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for your questions. Really appreciate it. At Parker, our purpose is simple. 
We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.